This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Well, it's June, and of course, that means summer is uh, nigh. I guess uh, the meteorological summer is actually coming on, but the official day, of course, is the 21st. But that means festival season. Lots of stuff going on. Busker Fest, of course, in Dundas. And, and we are getting set for Super Crawl, which is uh, the granddaddy, of course, uh, coming up in downtown Hamilton at the end of the summer. Tim Potasik, the director of Super Crawl, and, of course, Sonic Onion is with us here in studio. Thanks for coming in today. It's a busy time for you. Appreciate it. I love coming in. All right, let's deal with the elephant in the room. Uh, you saw <laughs> some of the kickback and the, the, the pushback you've been getting. Why is Tim not, you know, announcing Super Crawl in Toronto? This is a Hamilton festival. Uh, I, I, I thought a lot of the criticism was a little misplaced, but but you saw it. How do you respond to that? Um, well, I mean, we certainly can understand why people were like concerned about us moving an announcement to a different city. Um, the real time and place is important here, isn't it? Yeah, there was something going on with there Hamilton was there in was Toronto. yeah I mean it was associated with another Ham like a Hamilton initiative yeah. that was happening in the city and we got asked to be involved and I and we needed to you know we we're planning our launch it's always the first or second week of June and we thought well you know what that's a great fit and we also looked at it from the perspective of you know let's let, I mean let's wave that Hamilton flag we're go wave the flag in Toronto like and I didn't you know when we sat around to discuss it we didn't see a we didn't think that would be a problem, but you know, I can understand why people might think so. But we brought talent, Hamilton talent, to the Toronto audience. Uh, we announced, and the reality of an announcement is that it's it's in the world of the interweb, right? It's in yeah. the internet, and you know the big push for us was to get that video posted up on YouTube, posted on our Facebook page, posted on our website, and push it out that way. And most of the artists are pushing socially, and you know weren't exactly you know, the international acts, they, they weren't in the room. There are some Toronto acts that are playing the festival that came. Um, the Hamilton acts played and killed it. Yeah, you Tara Lightfoot there, didn't you? Yeah, we had Tara, we had Jesse Bauer, we had Thompson Wilson, we had Hatchie the Mouthpiece, we had the Hamilton Philharmonic did a quartet. It was, like, incredible, like, group of musicians that performed. We had uh, the Hamilton Aerial Group came and did stilt walking through the room while the performers were happening. There was a ton of fashion show uh, that happened just pre our launch as well, so all Hamilton fashion designers so it's like a you know a cavalcade of incredible talent in the room and that was sort of the point um we love to put our hamilton talent in people's faces like we have the best most talented musicians in the country in the you know the nation in north america in the world like hamilton is killing it and so that was the whole point well, I go Here. back to that comment, and I think I've mentioned this a couple of times on the program, but uh, it was, I guess it was about four or five years ago when uh, Strombo still had the TV show with the two red chairs there on CBC. I forget what it was. It was just called Strombo, I think. Anyway, Gord Downey was the guest, yep. and it was a great interview. Anytime you talk to Gord, it's fabulous. And, and, and George asked him, he said, where's the best place in the country for live music? And he said, Hamilton. And and he kind of looked back, and he said, no, oh, it's a great place. Yeah. And there's a guy from Kingston, but he, he kind of knew, and that was then. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's it's grown exponentially, of course, since then. Uh, and the people in the industry know that. But it's, hey, what's the matter with beating the drum about it? I, 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 as I say, I thought the criticism about where the announcement was made was, was a little petty, frankly, because, I mean, this was a, a City of Hamilton initiative. They decided whether you agree with it or not. They wanted to spend a few days down there beating the drum for Hamilton, and that's okay, and because there are still some people in Toronto that don't know that anything exists past, you know, the, the 427. You know, when you're heading out of Toronto, so why not? Why not talk about this? And 
it's, I don't think it's, we're pandering necessarily. I think it's just spreading the word about some of the great stuff that's going on here. I mean, we have a pretty substantial group of people that come from Toronto to see the festival every year. Well, too. I mentioned I mean, Strombo. He was one of them a couple yeah, of years ago, and he yeah. started tweeting about it and talking about it on his show at the time. So, I mean, it's a pretty substantial group of people taking the GO train and the, and the buses and driving into Hamilton to Supercrawl every year. You know, we're estimating close to 20,000 people. So, it's a you know, there's a big audience, and it wasn't necessarily... That's f- why they built the GO station down there, wasn't it? Because yeah. it's right at the end of the, the Supercrawl. There we go. They can get off the train and said, okay, start in the north end and work your way up to King Street. The stage is right there, <laughs> right? They walk right into a stage. So, um, you know, our pers- from our perspective, it was just, you know, waving the flag. We are really proud. We're proud to be Hamiltonians, and, and we're very proud of our musical heritage here. And we just, uh, we wanted to, you know, we wanted to uh, jump from the rooftops and wave the flag. So, and we did it, and it was awesome. People outside that you talk to in the industry understand what's going on here in Hamilton because you see with these guys and you deal with them on it from a business standpoint, not just with Supercrawl, but in your other business enterprises as well. Mm-hmm. Why don't we seem to get it here? It just seems as if there's a a, a, a small group here that are thriving and loving it and everything like that. But the odd person that says, well, what, what's going on here in Hamilton? A lot's going on here in Hamilton. Do, do we not beat the, do we do beat the drum well enough here in town to, to let people know? Well, there's certain people that definitely beat the drum. I think we could always use more, right? So, and it's just a matter of, um, it's an education, right? Like, you know, lots of people aren't um, necessarily living in the scene. I'm in it every day, so I can't help but beat the drum. Yeah. Um, And you do. And and I do, yeah. And so does our whole team and our group and lots of the people that um, that we work with, right? So, and our initiative has always been collaborative. Let's get people together. The more... The more voices, the better. So it's just a matter of continuing spread the word, educate people, get them out, come down to Supercrawl, go to Festival Friends, it's your festival, Cactus Festival. It's like a busker festival. It's crazy, right? There's so much to do in Hamilton and the venues downtown and the venues up on the mountain. Um, it's There's endless, endless things to do. And I think people... There's there's been years of it being you know maybe a little quieter than it should be, but it's not quiet anymore. And the more people that come out and support it, the less quiet will become. The more there will be to do. Well, what was it a couple of years ago? I remember I ran into you on James Street uh, right by your offices there, and uh, it was that perfect storm. The Lock Street Festival was happening just a few blocks away. Mm-hmm. You guys had Super Call going on, and the Canadian Country Music Awards were going on. Yeah, you couldn't walk down this street without just bumping into a, a, a Canadian musician. I mean, everybody was here, and I don't know how many thousands of people were in the streets. I mean, that was fabulous. And and why not do stuff like that? I mean, we need to celebrate what we've got here. Yeah, that was incredible. And that was a funny thing, too, because when those three events were happening at once, there was a lot of people that were like, oh, that's not going to be good because you're going to steal audience from this guy and that guy's going to steal audience from this guy. <laughs> and all I said was like, no, the audience is going to be they're going to circulate through all of the events and we all have our individual strengths and we're all going to promote to, you know, some of the same people, but lots of different people. And those people are going to be engaged to want to do other things. And that's exactly what happened. The crowd went from, you know, what would have been a smaller crowd for each one of us, but as a combined group of the three of us on the same weekend, it was like, out of control. Well, because I saw that. I mean, you know, we, we started off at Lock and sit and started working our way downtown. And and people that I saw at Lock Street, I saw downtown later on. You know, oh, yeah, yeah, it's time to get over here, too. And then you'd see them up on the uh, uh, at the Jackson Square Pipe, you know, for some of the entertainment that was going up there, too. It was just a great weekend. But this is going to be fabulous, too. Uh, in the interest of full disclosure, i got to tell you, I am a big fan of the Sam Roberts Band. Yeah. What a get. That, this is going to be fabulous. Yeah, I'm pretty, pretty excited. That one came about... Um, 
through uh, yeah some th- some shrewd negotiating and then uh, the realization that uh, the agents came back to me and were like oh well yeah Sam has been waiting for an offer and been wondering why he hasn't gotten one and I'm like well if I'd have known that I would have done it many years ago but um, yeah really excited Th- these to have guys Sam. are these guys are fabulous yeah they're they're super pro they have so many hits it's like it's ridiculous every song will be a hit and um, I'm looking forward to hearing some new material and having them in Hamilton they haven't been in Hamilton and quite a while so that's well the last big gig they played here was the last day at iron stadium Mm -hmm. with the with the hip that uh, that saturday night when the 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 final wind and and sam opened for them although you know when the gourd came i said they don't open for us they just you know we we co-own the stage here and it was great but these guys i mean he's 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 just you want to say rocketed to start him but i know like everyone else he's he's had to pay his dues through montreal and everything else but they've got such a great tight sound don't they yeah, um, amazing band. Super excited to have them. Good stuff. And they're going to be on the uh, the headline stage on Saturday night. Uh, Blackie and the Rodeo Kings. Now, Tom, of course, lives a couple of blocks away uh, half the time, <laughs> but, I mean, doesn't get to play here as often as a lot of us would like to see. No, and the band is all over the place, right? Like yeah. Collins and Nashville and um, I don't know where Steven is. Like, I, they're all over, right? And it's, it, it's challenging. So when they're touring, you know, we want to try to take advantage of it. And uh, Tom's been waiting. Tom's been bugging me for sure. When's my offer coming, Tim? And, <laughs> um, so I think we have every incarnation now of the Wilsons play. So we could check that box off and we'll con- continue to bring them back, of course, because every uh, band Tom's in and Thompson started a new, uh, a new cur- solo career now. It, they're incredible incredible uh hamiltonians incredible musicians and and uh, their flag wavers uh to the point where the flag you know rips to shreds off of the pole <laughs> uh they wave it so hard so i'm really excited to have them too and will be a great closer that they're on sunday now, some other great names too let's talk about some of the other acts that sure. you announced yesterday and we yeah. should by the way mention uh this is only part of the entertainment there's it still is, more yeah. to come later on but uh, but some other interesting acts and uh, some some other voices that people may know, but maybe not within the context of how they're going to appear at that stage. Mm-hmm. Um, we uh, we have Tanya Tagak, who's also uh, coming to perform, who also very exciting, and that was another one of those things where visiting her manager and um, who managed a number of uh, incredible Canadian artists, and we were just sort of you know having a chat, and uh, Tanya's name came up, and I'm like, oh, I'd love to have her at Supercrawl, and they're like. All right, and it literally got done in like about thirty seconds, and that so that's pretty exciting um, as well. So that'll be a really cool thing for Sunday. Um, John K. Sampson from the Weaker Thans. Uh, Weaker Thans probably one of my top five favorite bands. Never managed to be able to get them um, to the festival, so really excited to have John come down and play. And he'll play a whole pile of Weaker Thans tunes. They always uh, throw them into the set. So another really really exciting one for us and um bros who are just like kind of exploded you know side project of the sheep sheep dogs that have exploded onto the scene as well and uh i um i don't know it must have been like six months ago i was driving home and listening to the radio and this the single came on and i'm like who is that i had no idea i was like you know oblivious to it and i'm like oh my god that song is incredible and went and shazammed it and i'm like oh oh Oh, I know these guys. I can yeah. figure this out. So yeah. made some calls, and uh, yeah, that came together as well. So. It's it's amazing, actually. The, the the incarnations of some of these artists. You mentioned Tom Wilson, of course, and uh, you know the, the various incarnations of Tom Wilson uh, with the Junk House and, and Blackie and the Rodeo Kings, and 
and so many different things. And and now you got the sheepdogs doing the same sort of thing too. It's it's like you really got to keep track of what's going on here. It's because the same as as what you experienced. Somebody say, I know that voice, mm-hmm. but that's not the sheepdogs. But I know that voice. Well, yeah, it sort of is. Yeah. Yeah. So, and you know, on the local side, which we have like I think it's sixty five or seventy percent of the festivals local um, artists. Uh, we have. Uh, some also incredible people, Dan Edmonds, who's uh, also launched a solo career, which we're really, really excited about. Um, I have some of the, you know, buskers that are down there all the time, Vaudevillian, who are always busking downtown somewhere, playing somewhere. So that's a really cool, unique, interesting thing that's going to be happening uh, on stage and as well on street. Uh, Bill and the Art Crawlers, those uh, the guys that play every art crawl down by Maker's Market, will be doing some busking on the street as well. So um, that should be uh, cool and add a lot of animation to what's going on in the street. And that's something that we're really trying to do this year as well. You got Bands, some Circus Orange back too. We have Circus you? Orange. Speaking of people on the street. Yeah, yeah. We've got uh, the Hamilton Aerial Group and then we have some really incredible announcements coming as well with specific theater artists. So we put a call out to theater artists and we're just selecting them now and we'll be putting out the announcement in July. So there'll be some real cool performance art that's happening on the street as well and, and that's some of my favorite things like last year we worked with brat and they did a pop-up opera and people you know it was sort of scheduled but nobody you know it was sort of an impromptu thing and it's also really <coughs> one of the fun things i think we are able to do because of the environment is have these like pop-up shows that last maybe five minutes maybe last 20 minutes but they just they just happen at a point in time on the street and if you happen to be walking by at that time you get to see it and then the crowds build and then they disperse and that's the thing that really gets me it like turns my crank because people get talking about it yeah. they're like did you see that and they're like no Oh, and and you know, um, not the dis- it was not just, was just done by Murray Street. That's right. You there? <laughs> not the disappointment so much. It's sort of like more the anticipation and the fact that like you can't really see everything at Super yeah. Crawl. It's impossible to do, and you're going to miss things. And so, just so everybody out there who's listening understands, I see like maybe five percent of what I actually book. <laughs> I'm running around with my head cut off all weekend, so I make a real big purpose to like you know make a couple notes to be like I'm shutting my radio off and I'm going to be. At that stage for half an hour because I want to see such and such a band every year. So it's, I don't want to use the word eclectic, I guess, when you look at the mix, but there's a great variety of, of artists here and, and musical genres. But you just touched on one that, that I am really, really blown away that has be, almost become a part of this, of course, and that's the HBO. Yeah. Uh, because you would tend to think, well, what, what place do they have? Boris Broad is one of the coolest guys you will ever meet in your life. I mean, this guy just loves music. Obviously, he's mm-hmm. he's he's a maestro and a, 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 with classical music and opera and everything else. But he'll 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 get in there. He'll he's just let's do this. Let's collaborate with this. And and what a fabulous new wrinkle that you've added with this over the last couple of years since since the HBO has is kind of popped up there. And you never know where they're going to play or what they're going to do either. Yeah. Well, they collaborate generally. They're collaborating with a local artist every yeah. year. Um, and I have to say, like, uh, incredible team incredible group of musicians we love working with them we've worked with them on all size scales up to 20 30 uh, musicians down to three or four musicians and it's always something really cool and exciting and that's part of like you know the mandate of what we're doing uh as a as a festival in itself is that you know we pride ourselves on being a discovery festival of course Sam Roberts. Most people have heard a Sam Roberts song on the radio uh, on at some point in their lives, um, and we have to have those big acts that are going to help draw the big people. But we w- we want those acts to draw the people 
so that they can come and see the things that they're just going to bump into on the street. They're going to stand at a stage. They'll go to the local stage or one of the um, bigger stages where we've got local artists that are opening up the stages and, and they'll experience something that they would have never had an opportunity to. So that's one of the key principles of what we're doing is discovery and the discovery of local and the discovery of non-local and just the happenstance of being at the right place at the right time and being turned on by something and that getting people excited. As a guy who's been in the music business for a long, long time, though, what does this do for an artist? I mean, we, we as, as the, the, the listeners, as, the, as the, the patrons, as the people that go there to enjoy the music, we're loving this stuff. But when you take a local artist who gets that kind of exposure, and, and we've seen some of them who have been with you guys for a few years, off and on, depending on what they're doing with their careers and their lives at the time, uh, but but for a Tara Lightfoot or so many other local artists who get that sort of exposure that you may have not have seen before, you have oh I heard of her. Uh, now all of a sudden you get to listen to her for fifteen twenty minutes or a half an hour, however long she's going to be playing. And some of the other artists that you've just talked about, and some of them are going to be there for the first time as well. It's 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 got to be a boost career wise for them too, and to get that exposure in a, in a, in a much broader audience like that as opposed to a, a club setting, for instance. Sure, I mean. It- it really makes us incredibly excited to be able to give local bands um, an opportunity, like to stand on one of those stages and perform and rise to the occasion. And we found that certainly over the years, when you give those artists the opportunity, they really, they engage and they take full advantage of the, of what they're doing. And it gives them that experience where, you know, I'm hoping we're able to give uh, some of those smaller acts the experience that they need so that then when they, when they're at in another city and they get the opportunity to play another festival, they understand. They've already been educated on what happens because, mm-hmm. you know, in a lot of cases, it's the first time they'll have stepped on a festival stage. It's the yeah, first but they're time. Doing it, they're doing it at hometown. It's like a home game for yeah, them. Yeah, it's a home game, yeah. And yeah. they get to, you know, they get to understand um, not just the performance, but everything that goes around the performance, all the production team, how they get on stage, get off stage, how, you know, all the things that you need to learn and you need to have an opportunity somewhere to, be given to to learn those things and i'm happy to say that i think we've done that for you know hundreds of bands over the years just about out of time i gotta ask you i I, I, i'm not gonna say how big do you think this festival is gonna get i mean (laughs) from where it started years ago to where you are now but if they close down the whole downtown area i think you could fill it i mean it just seems as if as much space as they give you uh it's filled with humanity during the the festival these days uh and you have expanded it obviously uh you know down on the king william a little bit and of course up and down james street but but what do you see happening with this as time goes on? Because, I mean, it just seems as if success is building more success here. It's a very good question. We try to be as reasonable as possible about, you know, the closures and, and what we're doing is from, from a geographic perspective. Obviously, we want the festival to be successful. We want it to be safe. We want to be able to expand in a way that works for people. So, you know, we're looking at side streets. We're doing more side street activations because mm-hmm. it's an obvious, easy thing to do. And we don't, uh, we're not impacting um, traffic as much, you know, uh, if I expand it in certain areas there's definitely impacts that happen to commuters and people trying to get through the city although they should realize that supercrawl is happening so they should go uh, on the link (laughs) or around town um but uh you know and you know traffic finds its way and i don't think it's a the festival's that big of a impact on it but as far as growth i mean we're always looking you know we're always looking to to grow um we like to be very you know as modest about it as possible but we are making small tweaks every year you'll notice little tweaks we're moving stages a little bit the stage that's down by murray street is another hundred feet 
down the stage, down the street. So there's a little bit more room there. So it's a little bit more uh, comfortable for people. We can get bigger crowds in front of those stages. And so, you know, just small tweaks at this point just to be able to accommodate the people. Uh, it's not till September the 8th, September 8th through 10th, of course, in downtown Hamilton. But uh, the lineup looks fabulous and more to come as well. Tim, thanks as always. And congratulations to you and everybody uh, involved in this. And all this, I know the volunteers, too, that do all the great work on this, too. It's going to be a great time this year. Thanks for coming in today. Thank you very much. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Right now, uh, we were pleased to tell you uh, a couple of weeks ago, back in May, I guess it was actually, that uh, Hamilton has a new professional soccer team, right? as part of the Emerging Canadian Premier League. And uh, we were all excited about that, and uh, details were to follow, etc. But Hamilton and Winnipeg were the inaugural franchises that were awarded. Well, uh, it seems as if uh, somebody has pulled a yellow card out and tried to block this whole thing from happening, or at least thrown a, a fly in the ointment anyway. Uh, Hamilton City Council has put a motion forward that uh, will be debated next week, which essentially says the city wants to seek expressions of interest from other people other than the Tiger Cats, to have a soccer team here. That seems to be the gist of the motion anyway. I don't know whether or not it's going to carry on, but this is yet another uh, example, I guess, of, of City Council and the Tiger Cats seemingly at loggerheads, and I know an awful lot of people in this town are getting pretty tired of that narrative. Is it a misunderstanding? Is it a power play by somebody? I don't know. But it's, uh, it's, it's really bothersome to, to understand that a good news story like this all of a sudden gets sidetracked. Scott Mitchell is the CEO for the Hamilton Tiger Cats. Uh, he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Hey, Scott, how are you doing today? Hey, Bill, how are you doing? Thanks Excellent. Excellent. Uh, listen, let, let's, let's talk a little bit about this. I was excited, like a lot of other folks, uh, when I heard this announcement. Uh, we, we knew that when the stadium deal was stuck, as a matter of fact, you were in the studio talking to me about that, I think, at the time, uh, about plan B after the Tiger Cats got into Tim Horton Field was to move a professional soccer team in there. We had the Pan Am Games uh, last year, and that turned out to be a pretty good success. I saw the, the women's team, of course, with their friendly. That was a capacity crowd at Tim Horton Field. We're excited about this. You guys seemed excited about this. What happened here? What, I mean, when you heard about this motion for the city council, what was your reaction? Well, Bill, to be honest, I think it's a bit of a non-story. I mean, I, I really think it's unfortunate to, even to use things like the past tense we're talking about. We were excited. Everybody's excited. Uh, we're, we've got a tremendous amount of uh, of uh, people excited about soccer in Hamilton, excited about the CPL, excited about it being at Tim Hortons Field. Um, that's going to happen, and, of course, we're thrilled to be owning and operating the team. Uh, our sense is uh, this is probably more, more of a miscommunication between staff and, and some city council. Um, we fulfilled everything we needed to fulfill. Um, in fact, we've been keeping uh, council and the city manager updated consistently through the last year. Um, it's unfortunate, and I think it's, again, another bit of a black eye for the city. I got a call from an extremely senior person in the world of soccer this morning asking what the heck's going on in Hamilton with soccer, and, uh, and that's unfortunate. It certainly uh, isn't needed, uh, and I think it'll be resolved very shortly, but it's certainly... Uh, Unfortunate that we're talking about this instead of talking about all the great things that soccer is going to bring to Hamilton. Well, and we need to have that conversation. I know John McGrain, who's uh, involved in the uh, the, pro- the project with you guys, with the Tiger Cats, and everybody who knows soccer in Hamilton knows about John McGrain and his commitment to this as well. And and before we get into some of the logistics about about the good things that are going to happen here, uh, is is this a miscommunication? Is there, I mean, uh, I, I when this whole thing was announced, and I heard this from both sides, both the city and from you guys, Scott. Uh, about bringing the soccer team in here. I don't remember any conversation that there was a time limit for the Tiger Cats to get this thing done. 
Well, there was some language in the agreement uh, that was extended uh, because of uh, because of the delay of the stadium. The city had given us several extensions and written extension um, until the end of May last year to provide an update and uh, and uh, get some things done related to soccer. We had sent city the correspondence uh, in May of last year before the end of that deadline. Um, we assumed because we never heard back from the city until literally yesterday uh, that everything was uh, was in great shape. Uh, we'd done everything needed. Um, and with the city not responding or uh, um, certainly not voicing any concerns, we assumed obviously everything was taken care of. I think it will be. I think it is. Uh, I think this is, uh, this is, there's some politics involved in this, no doubt, and I think it will be resolved very shortly. Yeah, but you've found from experience over the years, and, and, and certainly I think we've seen this as well, uh, when you quote-unquote dealing with the city, 99 times out of 100, Scott, you're dealing with the administration, aren't you? Not with the politicians. In other words, uh, the, it's the administration that has the day-to-day operation of places like Tim Hortons Field. And I would imagine that your your correspondence and your dialogue was going with them, not necessarily with the elected officials. That's right. Absolutely. And, and obviously you make the assumption that uh, staff is keeping uh, keeping council uh, well-informed. And, and and if that had not happened, that's certainly not on you guys. I mean, that was mis- a miscommunication at City Hall then. Yeah, again, I, I suspect, Bill, this is mostly miscommunication. And uh, as I said, I, uh, hopefully it's a blip on the, the radar here because I certainly don't think in Hamilton we need any uh, any more embarrassing stories across the country uh, uh, about something that really is a great project. And again, the irony, of course, is that uh, a lot of the leadership on this project that is a really a global soccer project that everybody is, is talking about. If you looked at the news around the world on any of the media sites uh, uh, that talk soccer. This is I'm talking from a global perspective. They've been talking about the CPL. They've been talking about Hamilton being uh, being one of the first teams. They've been talking about the leadership that's been coming out of Hamilton. And you know, to have a have to have a discussion like this, even if it is for 24 hours, is is really unfortunate. Uh, and I think it's short sighted in terms of, of all the great things that this is going to bring to the city. Well, that's why I wanted to bring you on today to try to get some clarity on this. Uh, this, you know, there's another reality here. This is not on you guys, but I mean on the on the councilors that decided to even entertain a motion like. Like this, uh, it's not as if there are twenty-five or thirty professional soccer franchises that are out there running around saying, "Boy, I wish we could find a city to put a team in." Uh, it took you guys a long time to put this together. I mean, like any f- successful enterprise, Scott, there's a lot of work that goes into this and a lot of research. Yeah, again, and I, I suspect uh, Councillor Partridge uh, had, had good intentions, but unfortunately, the reality is is that not only through our license agreement, but uh, uh, but through the Canadian Soccer Association, Concacaf, and FIFA, uh, we have the exclusivity for professional soccer in Hamilton. Uh, uh, and that's just the reality, and that's not going to change. What about season-wise? So somebody, I got a lot of questions about this, uh, and when the announcement was made back in May, uh, what, what, at what time of the year? Is, it, is this going to be a summer league? Is this going to be a fall league, a spring league? Uh, and I guess the concern a lot of people might have is is, is potential uh, d- d- you know date problems with, with the tie Cats in their home schedule as well. Are you concerned about that at all? No, not at all. There's plenty of availability at uh, Tim Hortons Field. It's a great stadium. In fact, uh, as you know, we've kidded around before that it's uh, it's a FIFA uh, quality stadium uh, that the Ticats are just lucky enough to play out of. So it's actually built for soccer, as you know, and uh, and it's going to be a fantastic soccer facility. There's plenty of scheduling opportunities. Uh, uh, it's a very busy facility with all the community use, but I have no doubt that. Uh, uh, we're going to be able to put together a great schedule for soccer. I'm, gl- I'm glad you mentioned that because that's a point that seems to be lost on a lot of people. There, are some people that you know, well, there's some people that just love to complain, and God knows you get those calls too. I know I certainly do. Uh, and said, well, all they did was turn the stadium around. Well, no, they didn't. There was a lot more that went into it. This is a much better stadium than Iverwin ever was. But the 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 the, the way that it was turned around uh, to a north south uh, 
orientation. That's the law, isn't it, according to FIFA? I mean, if you want to have a FIFA-oriented stadium, it has to be a north-south. So it is now compliant for that sort of thing. Ivor Wynn was not. No, you know what, all stadiums in North America are uh, preferably built north-south, and there's all sorts of different reasons for it, but you're exactly right. And, you know, the one thing, Bill, I think people in Hamilton, look, 98% of the feedback we get from Tim Hortons Field is phenomenal. I think the people in Hamilton need to know, though, that, uh, you know, we're having people from all over the world come in and look at uh, Tim Hortons Field. I was with two uh, very prominent uh, FIFA promoters uh, last week from South America, one of them from a very prominent guy from Colombia came and took a look at Tim Hortons Field and was just absolutely wowed, thought it was a phenomenal facility and excited to bring international matches to Tim Hortons Field. So, you know, people from outside of our community are coming in, looking in Hamilton, looking at Tim Hortons Field and, and are wildly excited about the opportunities for soccer. What about that possibility? As, as this league starts to evolve, Scott, and, and as we mentioned, Toronto, or rather Hamilton and Winnipeg are the two inaugural franchises, but, but there will be others and there's a lot of potential here for that as well. But, but is there also the potential for some of those friendlies, some of those exhibition matches from teams from other parts of the world? Oh, no question. In fact, one of the things we've, we're trying to do, and it'll take some time, and, uh, um, but I think we'll get something done, is we're trying to create an a international tournament that's an annual tournament in Hamilton every summer. Uh, the, the best window to do it is really in that period of July when the, uh, when the national teams and the uh, European teams are uh, getting ready for their next year's schedule. Uh, and I think uh, we're going to be able to put something together great that's not just a, a tournament uh, for Hamilton and for Canada, but that's, uh, that becomes a tournament of some acclaim around the world. So we're very excited about that. And there is a tremendous amount of excitement, a lot of interest in uh, doing things in Hamilton. And, and as I said, there's, there's tremendous interest around the world in what Canada is doing with the CPL. Uh, email from Gary, who's listening to our conversation right now, uh, says, ask Scott, is, uh, is his concern that in any way, shape, or form, uh, this is a power play because of some of the contractual and legal implications between the city and the Tiger Cats right now? Well, I think that would be certainly very unfortunate. Uh, it does seem a bit coincidental, uh, Bill. Obviously, you're a, you're a smart guy. I'm sure you've got your own opinions on that. But uh, I, can, I can connect the dots. Yeah, I, I think that would be unfortunate. Uh, it, you know, the lawsuit is a difficult situation for everybody that uh, I think... Uh, I think uh, we'll eventually get resolved, whether that's in uh, in court or otherwise. And I think it would be really unfortunate if that's if if that's the case. That this is an attempt to leverage uh, leverage that. Well, we may never know the uh, the motivation for this. And I, I'd like to think, as you did, I guess, if you want to be a glasses half full sort of guy, that uh, that maybe a motion like this was uh, was based on misinformation as opposed to some uh, other circumstance like that and some hidden uh, motivation that uh, that perhaps this thing can get cleared up rather uh, sooner rather than later. I would think. I think so, and I think, you know, looking at the half-full uh, bill, I think this creates an opportunity to put this behind us and then really focus on uh, the positives and uh, the fact that Hamilton really has a chance to have a very, very successful franchise, and Hamilton has, has a chance to be a very, very prominent uh, group in our city and the world of uh, soccer, not just in Canada, but around the world, and that's very exciting. What about the league itself, Scott? How do you see that rolling out? Uh, two franchises initially like that. Are, are there discussions about, about further franchises to kind of fill out a schedule like this? Because I know that you've talked at one point about perhaps getting underway as early as 2018. Absolutely. That's the goal right now. Uh, we spent another six hours yesterday uh, uh, dealing with it. We've got a tremendous group of, uh, of owners from across the country. We've had uh, more than 12 expressions of interest now from Victoria all the way to, uh, all the way to Halifax. Uh, I think eventually you're going to be looking at a 10 to 12 team uh, league by you know 2020 let's say and i think in 2018 uh, um we're focused on a six to eight team launch and uh 
Um, there's a tremendous amount of interest. The, the only issue right now we're dealing with, quite frankly, we could have as many as eight to ten teams up and running next year in a great league, but uh, there are some facility issues uh, that need to be resolved in, in different cities, ironically enough, uh, and just, just in terms of getting facilities prepared, getting facilities up and ready. But, uh, you know, the thing for us is that we've had tremendous engagement with uh, municipalities across the country, a very, very positive, cooperative relationship uh, with all of them, and there's tremendous excitement with municipalities to bring soccer to their communities. When you're looking at potential franchises, uh, is there a focus on, well, say, CFL cities, for instance, uh, because a few of them might be available? There are, you know, this is really, uh, uh, well, there might be some teams that have uh, CFL teams that operate a soccer team. This really doesn't have anything to do with the CFL. No. It's, it's its own entity, and, and I think the one thing that's exciting for Bill is that you know, at the end of the day, the CFL is a big business, and uh, facilities have to be, you know, that twenty-four to 30,000-seat facility at minimum. You know, this soccer business uh, is uh, has a requirement of, you know, six to 10,000 uh, seats. So that enables more municipalities to come into play. You're going to look at places that typically certainly wouldn't be looking at building 25,000-seat CFL stadiums, but would be looking at building, you know, as I said, six to eight to 10,000-seat facility uh, for not just pro soccer teams, but of course for uh, for soccer for their community. As it's, uh, you know, it's the one sport that there's literally no barrier to entry. It's it's got great uh, um, participation from both girls, boys, men, women. It's got great uh, cultural diversity. Uh, it's economically uh, neutral in terms of barrier to entry. So you know, for communities, they see that. Uh, that fulsome approach to soccer and how many people it engages. And, of course, we're trying to do everything we can to keep our kids fit. Um, so it's really, it really touches a lot of bases with communities and municipalities when they look at the facilities needs. I, I'm just wondering, as potentials like this, obviously, you think of some of the major cities, like obviously Vancouver, Montreal, and, and places like that. But, but, but what, And I hate to use the term secondary markets, but, I mean, places like London and Windsor, which are uh, soccer hotbeds right now, uh, I, I don't know about the logistics of facilities for them like that, but I mean those those are things that would come to mind as as potential sites because you know the fan interest is going to be there. No question. Again, I think we'll be in every major city uh, by 2020 or 2021, but uh, we will be in some of those other cities. I think there's places, obviously, like Saskatoon that uh, you know have a tremendous opportunity to uh, to be a great soccer city. As a, as I mentioned before, places like Victoria, you know, Halifax. Of course, we have had some interest from both Windsor and Moncton. Um, so those are the types of, of uh, places that you're going to get into uh, while also having the major uh, markets as well. So that's very exciting to build a property like that. i got to ask you just before I let you go, because I had a conversation with John McGrain back when this was still in the conceptual idea. That's a few months ago now. Uh, and he talked about uh, about how a pro team like this would actually be integrated into the minor soccer programs here. Uh, and I know, for instance, from the football side of things, you guys do that all the time. I mean, the players are out there. They're, they're doing clinics at minor football and high school camps all over the city uh, when these guys are in town. And that's starting now, of course, since they're in camp now. Do you see that happening? Is there, is there a plan in place right now, Scott, for, for this, this Hamilton soccer team to, to start to motivate and maybe enhance some of the minor soccer programs that are already in existence? Oh, I don't think there's any question. I mean, the, the guiding principle uh, for this whole league and this business, uh, working with the CSA and CONCACAF and FIFA, is to develop soccer in Canada and turn soccer into a great uh, uh, soccer nation. So the only way to do that is by engaging the youth from across the country. We've got tremendous participation across the country. And in Hamilton, I think we've got something uh, around 25, 26,000 people who are playing soccer uh, regularly and consistently or registered through the Hamilton Minor uh, Soccer, Hamilton District Minor Soccer Association. And of course, John Gibson has done a tremendous job in running that organization and mm-hmm. turning it into a great entity. And we absolutely uh, are planning on being completely intertwined with the minor soccer community in this, in this city and working with all the kids and the parents uh, to make sure that uh, um, you know we're great not only great community partners but helping them uh, uh, helping 
turn Hamilton into a soccer city from uh, from the kids who are four years old and like my uh, youngest son Bo all the way up to uh, uh, men and women who are playing in the recreational leagues. Well, I saw him kicking a ball around at uh, Tim Horton Field last year during one of the pregame things, so I can see him playing eventually here, too. That's that's in the stars, I think. Uh, listen, I, I'll let you go at this stage. Uh, hopefully, and I'll say this because I know you won't because you're too classy a guy, but, I mean, the, the council got their headlines. Now let's try to work together on this instead of trying to create more fractions. And, and I, I'd like to see the city and the Tiger Cats working together to try to get all this stuff resolved uh, for the mutual benefit of both them and for the people of Hamilton that want to see a great sports team. Couldn't put it any better myself, Bill. Scott, thanks for the time today. Good talking with you again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Scott Mitchell, CEO for the Hamilton Tiger Cats and, of course, the soon-to-be Hamilton professional soccer team. And hopefully the city councilors will get it. I, I just get the sense, you know, that that what this is is, well, we weren't allowed to, we weren't invited to the press conference when they announced this. Get over yourselves, would you please? You know, this. can you not understand that this is for the benefit of everybody and to try to create these rifts and say, well, we're going to see if anybody else is out there. In other words, that's a slap in the face of the football team. And I know that, that some people in this community and certainly some people on city council get a real charge out of doing that. But it's not good for the city. And as Scott said, it's already putting another black eye in the city. And that's something we don't really need. God knows we've been down that road before. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. There is a backlog of individuals who require service dogs. Now, you may or may not even know what we're talking about when I use the term service dogs, but this backlog is is rather tr- critical at this stage. It's causing some people to stay on wait lists for years. Dogs trained for individuals in need cost uh, a considerable amount of money. To talk about this, I'm so pleased to welcome back an old friend uh, to the studio, a uh, longtime friend, not an old friend. Sorry, Danielle. Uh, <laughs> uh, Danielle Forbes is the Executive Director for National Service Dogs of Canada, uh, and she is with us here in studio along with... NSD Ortona. Okay. Sponsored and named by our friends at Wounded Warriors Canada. Who are great sponsors and great friends of They're yours, aren't they? They're amazing supporters of our PTSD program. They actually helped um, fund the program so that we could um, expand our um, area of service beyond Ontario across Canada. So with their support, well, because we're now a, offering dogs across Canada. This little guy here is actually from Edmonton, isn't he? He was puppy raised in Edmonton, yeah. yes. He was from our breeding program, but uh, his puppy raiser uh, lived in Edmonton and worked out at Canada Forces Base Edmonton. She was a captain out there. So he's uh, he's had a very very military upbringings. <laughs> well, I, I don't notice the discipline, but okay. No, he's fine. He's, he's, <laughs> he's great. He's just uh, laying down right between us right now as you and I are talking. Why don't we start at square one here and explain to people exactly uh, what service dogs are? I mean, some people, I'm sure most of us at one time or another, uh, have seen that there are people that are visually impaired that will use dogs. And, and it's a special training. These aren't pets. These, these are working dogs. No, these are professional uh, professional canines. So um, service dogs, um, as you as you said, uh, dog guides for the blind are the are the kind of the oldest running program. Yeah. But today, dogs are being used for everything from um, diabetes alert, seizure alert, hearing, obviously, assisting with physical disabilities. Um, National Service Dogs' claim to fame is our autism service dog program. We were the first in the world to develop a service dog model for children with autism. And we've been doing that for 21 years. Um, our model is now being used worldwide. But the, the demand for services is is through the roof. Um, our PTSD program for veterans and first responders is the same. The as as more dogs are out working and people can see the benefits to the individuals they're supporting and the efficacy of the dogs, 
um, they're becoming recommended by treatment professionals. So gone are the days where um, people found out about our autism program through um, Google searches and stuff. A lot of um, individuals diagnosing children with autism and professionals working with children with autism are recommending to families get a service dog. And then, of course, not realizing that the, the industry, not just national service dogs, but the entire industry is so flooded with demands for service that they then go online and start looking up organizations like ours and then find out that there's all these roadblocks because we're all swamped and we can't meet the, the demand. I want to talk about those numbers in just a second, but let me go back to the, to, to the reason why. Uh, there's such a demand here, and and obviously it's it's because of the number of people that are dealing with issues like autism, wherever they may be on that autism spectrum, mm-hmm. PTSD, and others. But but like you say, traditionally, and this goes back generations, of course. You thought, oh, okay, that's a guide dog for somebody who's visually impaired. We get that, and they're they're trained to yeah. to make sure they don't walk across the road or et cetera like this. Yep. But it, where was it? It's at what point in 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 this progression, though? Did we see Danielle where? Where other healthcare professionals started to understand that, wait a second, dogs aren't just cute and cuddly. They have something mm-hmm. to offer. They're perceptive. Uh, they, they're able to read body language. They're able to almost even understand emotions before we understand our own emotions. There's, there's, there's a, an innate ability with, uh, with dogs to, to actually be a companion, not just a friend, but to actually be able to look out for us. I mean, you know, we, we used to watch the old Lassie show of some of us when we were kids and say, how did Lassie know this? Because dogs are a lot smarter than we tend yeah. to give them credit for. Well, as you said, they're nonverbal communicators. Yeah. So they're picking up on minute cues in your body language. That's why they work so well for the children with autism yeah. and veterans. A lot of times under anxiety and stress, they're throwing out body signals, whether it's little twi- twinges of their fingers or tapping of the foot. Um, the dogs will tune into that and... As service providers um, who are actively looking to mitigate um, anxiety and all that stuff, we actually gather that information from our clients and say, okay, under stress, how do you behave? And if we can come up with what we call a tell, um, whether it's, uh, you know, flicking your fingers or tapping your foot, we custom train the dogs to We may to not even know what we're doing. Exactly. There's, but you know what it's like? It's, it's they're like unconscious, a, but yeah. we train the dogs to do that, and then then the dogs, what's interesting is over time, they start to cue in into, into other things and start to alert even before they get to the point where that foot tap happens. They are so in tune and can read that person's And Now, dog owners state. are going to know exactly what you're saying. Now, they're not trained, you know, my dogs, to the extent that your dogs are. Yeah. But, but you'll always hear a story from dog owners that say, how, how did they know I needed some cuddling? Or, you know, to, how did they understand? Because they read us. They do. You know, we we, we don't do. understand that because we're kind of doing our things, but they're constantly studying us, aren't they? Yeah, they are. And some dogs are more intuitive than others. Yeah. Like this handsome dude at my feet here, Ortona, he's highly intuitive. Um, he reacts um, and has done since he was a puppy to anxiety and stress. And because the person raising him knew what we needed out of our dogs coming down the pipe um, when he comes back for advanced training, she rewarded him for responding to any stressors and anxiety issues in her life. So then it becomes self-rewarding and he looks for opportunities to support because he gets praised for it. He gets a treat, he gets loving, he gets pets and play and all that stuff. So it becomes a really positive self-rewarding system. We have discovered over the last, uh, I'd say 25 or 30 years especially though, uh, and maybe more intensely in the last five or six years, 
the need for dogs and how they can play a role in our society, not just as pets, but uh, senior centers are using them now mm-hmm. as companions now because they understand that that eases anxiety for a lot of the people that are in, in those circumstances, people yeah. that are dealing with diseases, uh, and, you know, that are, are looking for something like this. And it's not just companionship. There's there's a relationship that develops between these mm-hmm. dogs and, and, and the people that they're with. And well, we, I know people that are, are yeah. living on the autism spectrum. Uh, three of them that I can think of right off the top of my head, all of them have service dogs, companion dogs. And, and, and I talk to the family members, and they say it makes a world of difference. They, yeah. they see a perceptual increase in, 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 in the way the, the, these people act because mm-hmm. the dog is there for them. And it is yeah. maybe you even read something that's going on before they know it's going to yeah. happen. And the dogs help to model behaviors. Yeah. So our veterans tell us this, that if they're in a high state of anxiety, hypervigilance out in the public and their their emotions are coming to the fore. Children with autism do it for different reasons as well because they get overwhelmed by an uh, environment. And they can look to their dogs and go, okay, the dog's not reacting. The dog's not stressed. So obviously I'm safe. I need to just take a breath and go where the dog is right mm-hmm. now, is, which is calm, cool, and collected. And they can make that leap. So self-regulation of your emotions. Our children with autism learn how to do that utilizing their dogs, um, whether it's through petting them, laying on them. The dogs are trained to come up and lay on top of them and provide deep pressure. And deep pressure uh, means science has proven that that actually reduces anxiety, whether it's being applied by a dog or a weighted blanket um, it does reduce anxiety and stress and helps you to calm down and relax. So um, the dogs play a huge role on that front. Where do you find the dogs? I mean, this is a gorgeous... Uh, no, he's not just a purebred lab, is he? No, he's a lab Bernese Mountain Dog okay. Cross. Okay. Um, National Service Dogs has been breeding dogs for 21 years, and um, we work in partnership with other guide and service dog providers sharing stud services back and forth so we can keep our lines fresh and um, broad. But we're working within the service dog community so that when we breed our dogs, we know they've got a long history of working service dogs behind them so we get the temperament and trainability that we what, need. What kind of temperament are you looking for here? We're looking for they're this. Not, they're not just what docile. Not, no, what you're seeing here is he came into a novel environment. Uh, he's probably not seen a room quite like this before. He came in, checked you out, laid down, and now he's fast asleep. Yeah. So we need dogs that are get that easily phased, <laughs> low prey drive, um, not lazy, but lower energy, especially for the, the children with autism. Usually we want just to create a chill atmosphere for them, even for the veterans. Um, they need to be confident, though. You know, um, they need to be able to walk into a room like this and go, eh, whatever. Some of that's training and early exposure, but some of it is built, uh, bred into them. Um, we need dogs that can get on a plane and go to Disney and get on the Pirates of the Caribbean and look around and go, cool. <laughs> Again, nothing new or exciting here. So um, the dogs that we've bred over the last 21 years, um, um have resulted in what you see today. It's been a, a he, he was, year yeah, he was he was as he came in the studio here. Uh, he he looked around. It was pretty obvious, but I mean, you know, I I have dogs, obviously, and, and so anytime I go around another dog, they start saying, "Oh, yeah," and they start, "Oh, they start jumping up." Oh, you you have dogs, yeah, because they can smell the other yeah, dogs. Yeah. He just kind of looked at me and said, "Oh, you're a dog owner. Okay, that's cool. Right, that's you're cool. cool. That's cool. <laughs> yeah. I got to go look over here now." Yeah. And he kind of checked out a couple of other things and just said, "Okay, fine. Yeah. Everything's There's fine." There's no here. food on the floor. Might as well just go to yeah. sleep. <laughs> yeah, I'll just check this out here. But I know what you're all about now. You look yeah, yeah. okay. 
uh, you're not a threat to, to you, so yeah. okay, we'll sit down here, we'll just chill out here. Yeah, no, and, and that's what we look for, and that's what, um, and that's part of the reason we when we chose to expand from our autism program into PTSD, PTSD mirrors autism in a lot of ways, yeah, anxiety, yeah. Um, social um, isolation, um, need, the need for deep pressure and light pressure and redirects. Um, children with autism will um, get so overwhelmed they retreat or they engage in self-injurious behaviors. Um, individuals with post-traumatic stress um, will retreat as well or dissociate completely. And in both cases, the dogs are um, redirecting them with nudges and bumps and trying to get them to refocus on something positive and creating like a positive energy around them. Um, one of our one of our clients uh, practices breathing exercises in matching his breathing with the dogs. Do, do the dogs clue into the triggers that might set somebody off? Yes, absolutely. Or do they simply respond to the, how that individual responds to the triggers? Um, well, in the early days of our autism program, we didn't train the dogs to respond to any of that stuff. Um, but they figured it out for themselves. They were with the kids long enough to know that um, this behavior meant a meltdown was coming, yeah. so they would work to stop it. With our B- our PTSD program, we were more targeted in our approach, and we were able to get more feedback and what have you. And um, so the dogs are custom trained, but that's just to get them started, to get them cued in on that person's body language. So we are just getting them to cue in on one little thing. Once they've been out working with the client for an extended period of time, they're queuing into the whole package, sure. whether it's, you know, a nervousness in the voice, whether it's a twitch physical, it could be profuse sweating. If somebody's under huge stress, they can get a different body odor um, because they're sweating more than they normally would. And the dogs queue into all of that. And then it becomes a whole package. So if, if the person that they're with is, is relaxed and cool... They're responding like this. Mm-hmm. I'm fine. Okay, I'm going to sit down, and have a snooze yeah. here. But yeah. but at, as soon as they notice a difference in in the behavior, or a difference in the tone, or a difference yeah. in 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 how they're responding, all of a sudden the dogs back on. They're 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 on again. Yeah. So if if I was one of our clients, and in this situation I was becoming stressed, and I started tapping the table with my hand like this, and the dog had been trained to respond to that cue, they would sit up and put their head in your lap and try to re-engage you and refocus you. This is a very intense training. It takes a long Two time, years. and it's it's not cheap. Two years, yeah. We provide our dogs at no no charge to our no, clients. Yeah, we need to mention but, that. But um, it costs our, our organization from the day that puppy's born to the day it retires 10 years later um, is $30,000. Um, and it's front-end loaded, so half that 30000 comes in the first two years as we um, raise and train and prep the dogs. Um, so yeah, it is, it's labor intensive. Um, you can't respond quickly to changes in the, in the, um, the industry either. And that's one of the biggest problems we're having right now with the wait lists and people not being able to get in. The dogs that we're training today, we bred two years ago based on our budgetary restraints two years ago, based on rough estimates of where we thought the program was going to be in two years. Um, the but budgetary you, piece is but the you guys like you didn't anticipate that PTSD was going to be uh, a part of this and all of a sudden look at the number of people that are dealing with that and suffering from that now I well, mean that that's put a great deal of pressure on this program we we in, anti- in a good we, way we, but yeah we and we anticipated that we would obviously we we planned for an increase in number of dogs going sure. out the door we've yeah, gone yeah. from having 16 to 30 dogs going out the door we've doubled 
But the um, what we didn't plan for was the overwhelming requests that we'd be getting from the general public. So we're focused on veterans and first responders. We get between um, probably eight and twelve inquiries a day from the general public outside of the veterans community desperate for dogs, for depression, mental health issues, all kinds of stuff. Um, And they're either calling us, wanting us to certify their own dogs that they've um, trained or have themselves, or they want us to um, provide them with a fully trained dog, um, or they want us to certify for public access um, their pet dog. Um, Is that doable? No, we don't do any of that. I didn't think so, yeah. No. Well, here in Ontario, here in Ontario, the Ontario... Accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities Act only requires that you have a doctor's note. So the certification piece is a bit of a red herring here in Ontario. In other provinces, the dogs have to be qualified uh, under Assistance Dogs International or their um, provincial testing mechanism. But here in Ontario, um, that certification isn't even on the table as required. But um, we receive an overwhelming number of phone calls every week, dozens and dozens of them. Um, That's a full-time job for one of my staff just to deal with the phone calls coming in. And the challenge is is, is that the people calling, it's not that they don't deserve dogs and don't need dogs. It's just we just don't have the capacity to help them. And their stories are heartbreaking. Heartbreaking, made even more so when you have to say, "I'm sorry, we can't help you." In, but here's here's where I find this very frustrating, and I'm sure you guys and your staff do too, though, Danielle. This is a healthcare issue. I mean, these no, <laughs> it, and it is, it is, it is, and yeah. the science is in there. We're not speculative here. No. The science is in that these dogs are a benefit to the people, the health of people that are dealing with autism, dealing with PTSD, and so many other issues. This this works. This is a therapy that works. Well, there's a and, reason and just, why medical just, professionals are, are, yeah. are recommending our services on so, a regular so, basis. And if we have a, a, a government-sponsored health care system, I don't understand why these guys aren't stepping up and saying, we need to help with this program. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's my understanding through my connections uh, in the international community that in some European countries, the insurance companies See? recognize the efficacy of the dogs and they pay the service dog providers and cover those costs because they know um, whatever studies or whatever research they've done, they understand that the dogs can actually reduce health care costs. Now, here in Canada, um, Veterans Affairs actually is just um, just wrapping up an efficacy study for PTSD service dogs. Mm-hmm. That uh, has been going on for two years. Um, um, National Service Dogs and other programs have got dogs involved in the study or in clients involved. So we're looking forward to seeing the results um, either later this year or early next year on that, uh, that PTSD service dog study. But um, certainly um, it's an area of alternative um, therapy that is gaining, gaining momentum. I mean, we, um, you were speaking about dogs being used in uh, nursing homes and hospitals. Well, one of our other programs is our facility dog program. So we have dogs that have been assigned to courthouses and victim service units that are helping children give forensics, forensic interviews and testify in court and supporting them through that. We have um, five dogs working in school boards across across this country, providing trauma support, working with social workers and working with hundreds of kids, providing support for behavioral issues, trauma, anything, bullying, anything the kids are dealing with at school that they're struggling with. Well, I, I can say, I, I know that's not why you came in here, but this is my thought on this. I mean, the government's got to get more involved in this. I mean, this is 
this is the same as an insurance company covering somebody who has to go for massage therapy after an accident or so, or physiotherapy or anything else like this. It it helps take some of the pressure off the healthcare system, and it and it's a a very integral part of of, of families that are are living with autism or so many other things as well. We only got about a minute or so left here. Uh, they're not going to jump on board, meaning the government's anytime soon. How can people get involved, and how can they get information about this program? Well, um, for National Service Dogs, <coughs> the best way to reach us is through the Internet, uh, www.nsd.on.ca, or Google National Service Dogs. will come right up. Um, we have our motorcycle ride coming up. Um, When's that? Ju- July 9th. And again, all that information is on our website. Uh, any donations are greatly appreciated. We have great sponsors in Purina. And as I said, Ortona here is sponsored by Wounded Warriors, as mm-hmm. is our PTSD program. And um, But any support is greatly appreciated because we do not get government funding. So we are really reliant on donations. And puppy raising, if you're looking to volunteer, yeah. um, one of your team members here at uh, uh, CHML producer, is puppy. Liz yeah. Russell. Liz is part of the reason we're here. She's uh, going through the process to become a puppy raiser. And um, we have 125 dogs in foster care. And those are all being raised for us um, and helped along their journey to become a service dog by very dedicated volunteers, and we'd be lost without them. So. Go to the website and get all the information <laughs> on that if you can. It's so good to see you again, Danielle. And, yes. and thank you so much, great, much, so much rather, for the great work that, that you and the staff are doing in this. I, I wish there was a dog for everybody who needed it here. So do I. Because uh, it would make this a, a, a better world to, to, because of the great work that they're doing. Uh, he's got to go back to work now, so I'll let you guys get back there. Thanks again for being <laughs> Thank in here. Thank you for the opportunity. We appreciate it. Danielle Forbes, the Executive Director of National Service Dogs of Canada. Just Google that. Go to the website and get all that information. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.